Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas indeed. This is a day that we set apart to remember this astounding truth that the Ancient of Days was born in a lowly manger over 2,000 years ago. My friends, we come this morning to celebrate the arrival of the Messiah, the one who was promised long ago, and he came to deliver us from our sin. The good news of the gospel begins right here at Christmas. So let us now turn our attention to this gospel story as we read from Philippians 2, verse 1 to 11. So turn with me in the copy of, your, copy of God's word to Philippians 2, verse 1 to 11. And this morning we are going to give special attention to verse 6 to 8. Verse 6 to 8. Hear now the words of your king. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray for the preaching of God's word. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we marvel at your amazing love to send your only Son to rescue us from our sin. Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his humility and his love. Lord, we ask now that you will show us his glory. We ask that you help us to see with eyes of faith and that we will treasure Christ above any earthly ple pleasure. Lord, this Christmas we ask that you would open the eyes of the blind for those who do not know you, that you show them the eternal joy of knowing Christ as Lord. We ask that you would help all of us 
to rejoice in this great gift. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Growing up, every Christmas morning started the same way. We woke up with anticipation and excitement for what the day would bring. We would wait patiently at the top of the stairs. We'd wait for mom and dad to tell us it was time to come down. They would tell us, come, it's, it's time to open presents. And we would run down the stairs with joy. We were overjoyed with all the possibilities that laid before us. And I had good, many good memories of opening gifts and enjoying families throughout the years. But do you know what amazes me? I can barely remember any Christmas gift I received over the years. But do you know what I can remember? I can remember those disappointments. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? You wanted that one thing all year long, and you didn't get it. Even worse, your sibling got it. I, I still remember... There was one year I longed for a guitar. I wanted it so badly, and I never got it. But yet, a couple of years later, my parents gave it to my brother. And I still remember it to this day. But I want to ask you, when you do not get the things that you want, what is going on in your heart? We can become jealous or bitter, maybe even angry at our parents or angry at God. This can be true at Christmas or this can be true in life in general. Even as we have heard the past two weeks about the gifts of marriage and singleness, think about your own heart. Think about your own life. How many of us, whether you're married or single, struggle to compare what God has given to us with others? How many of us struggle with contentment? And without fail, every time I was given in to jealousy during those Christmases, my pride would suffocate and kill my joy. All that excitement that I had leading up to Christmas was suffocated by my own selfish ambition and my bitter jealousy. This is what pride does. It is a joy kill. I wonder how pride might be hindering your joy this Christmas. In the New Testament, James says that everywhere you find chaos in your homes or in your hearts, you will find pride. You will find pride. My friends, our sinful arrogance wrecks havoc in our relationships and it hinders our ability to enjoy God's good gifts. Ultimately, we see in the scriptures that our pride cuts us off from the source of joy, God himself. Now, this is one of the reasons why the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. He was zealous for them to know the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. But like us, the church was suffering from trials, and it was exposing their sinful pride. Their pride was threatening their joy and progress in the faith. 
We see in this book that some were preaching out of rivalry. Others were preferring their own interests. Some were neglecting the good of others. Even godly women like Euodia and Syntyche were at odds with each other. So what does Paul do? What is Paul's strategy to help this congregation walk in love towards God and walk in love towards one another? He calls them to have one mind. He calls them to the mind of humility. And you'll see that in verse 1 to 4. He tells them to have one mind, the same mind, the same love. He calls them not to do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but to count others, to consider others as more significant than themselves. But let me ask you, how can sinners like you and me prefer the interest of other sinners, especially those sinners who have hurt us or make life really hard? How is this possible? Well, the Apostle Paul turns us to the source of humility. He turns our hearts and our eyes to the only one who is truly humble. He says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. This is the mind of Christ. Friends, the only way to kill our pride and to walk in humility is to put on the mind of Christ. This is what it means to be a Christian. And this is the great Christmas gift that Paul gives us this morning. His aim is to teach us to crush our arrogance by turning our eyes to the founder and perfecter of true humility. Beloved saints, non-Christian friends, unbelieving children, today I bring good news of great joy. Good news that will squash your pride and give you everlasting joy. So let's now turn our eyes to Jesus Christ. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is to marvel at three aspects of Christ's humility. Let's look at three aspects of Christ's humility, and we see this in verse 6 to 8. First, Paul shows us the heart of humility. The heart of humility. Look again in verse 5. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. So let me ask you, where does the mind of humility begin? Does it begin with us? Maybe you think humility is a characteristic innate to us being creatures. We're finite. We're limited. We're only capable of so much. Therefore, we must be humble. Now, while there is some truth to this, the Apostle Paul shows us that true humility is found in the very character of God himself. True humility comes from the very character of God himself. So the heart of humility flows from the very heart of God. We see this in the humble attitude of the divine Son, Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that he, being Jesus, was in the form of God. 
he was equal with God as God himself. But is that what the text says, you might be thinking? Paul does not say that Jesus was God. He says he was in the form of God. Friends, many heresies have been born by making too, mo- too much of this work, Greek word, morphe, which we translate form. For instance, Arius believed that Jesus was a similar substance or form as God, but that he did not possess the exact same nature as God. Did Jesus only possess a similar nature to God? No. As the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD rightly explained, Jesus is God, a very God, light, a very light, of one nature with the Father. As one commentator points out, Paul uses this word for form to explain Jesus' pre-incarnate glory, his pre-incarnate glory as the divine Son. You see, actually, Paul's use of this word in the form of God actually best represents what John explains in his gospel, that passage that we read earlier, that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. John begins his gospel this way. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, was with, sorry, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God. So Paul here is helping us see that Jesus is God, but he's also distinct as the second person of the Trinity. But how does Jesus display this characteristic of humility? What does he do? What is his heart? Well, Paul says that though he was in the form of God, though he is the second person of the Trinity, he did not count or consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. This was the heart attitude of Jesus Christ. But what does it mean that Jesus did not consider equality with God? thought I just said that he's God. So if he's God, is he not equal with God? How can God not consider equality with God? Well, before we can understand what Paul is saying, we need to first give thought to what it cannot mean. What can this phrase, that Jesus did not consider equality with God to be grasped, not mean? Well, first... It cannot mean that Jesus did not consider himself equal to God the Father. The Gospels are full of Christ's own testimony that he's equal with God. For instance, listen to what Jesus says in John 10, verse 29. He says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. So Jesus is equal to God. Second, this phrase cannot mean that Jesus did not seek his own glory. Think about Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 5. As he's praying to the Father, he prays, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So it's from these two passages 
we see that Jesus Christ is both equal with God and worthy of glory as God. So then what does it mean that Jesus, who is God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped? Well, I think it's helpful to understand what Paul is really saying. When he says that he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, really what he is saying is that he did not take advantage of his equality with God. Though he is equal with God, he did not use it for his own selfish gain. You see, when God predestined our salvation before the, salvation, before the foundations of the world, Jesus Christ did not defend his own rights. He willingly humbled himself as the divine son in order to accomplish God's plan of redemption. As systematic theologian Stephen Wellham writes, the son did not take advantage of or exploit his full equality with God to excuse him from the task of becoming our redeemer. In this way, Jesus becomes an example for us while remaining in a category by himself. So he did not take advantage or exploit his equality with God to excuse him from the task of becoming our Redeemer. This is the heart of humility in Jesus Christ. My friends, do you have a heart of humility like Christ? How often do you consider others as greater than yourself? True humility has nothing to do with whether you are rich or poor. The heart of humility recognizes your equality with others, but chooses to lower yourself before others. It does not take advantage of rights, but gives up rights. Husbands, do you use your position of authority to serve your own interests? Or do you show honor to your wife, knowing that she is an heir with you of the grace of life? Saints, how often do you gather on Fridays and really consider others as more worthy and more honor than yourself? Or, do, or deep down, do you think too highly of yourself? Are you quick to make yourself the center of the conversation? Do you make yourself like a god, seeking the praise of your fellow brothers and sisters? You know, one of the best ways to combat your pride is to be quick to point out evidences of grace in others, to be quick to honor others, to tell others when you see God at work in them. Every single time you're tempted to make much of yourself, flee your pride and remember the humility of Jesus Christ. Remember the one who is worthy of praise, but not take advantage of his glory for the sake of others. So first we see the heart of humility, but we also see the condescension of humility, or the lowering, the stooping down of humility. And we see this in verse 7. So look again, and we'll start from verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Christ's heart of humility 
led him to empty himself. What does that phrase, empty himself, mean? Is Paul saying that Jesus emptied some of his divine attributes? Maybe he's still God, but maybe he emptied some of his attributes, like his omnipresence or omniscience. Or maybe it means that Jesus set aside his glory. He's still the image of God's glory, but he set it aside for love. Well, Paul is, is very clear what he means in the text. Just keep reading. Just keep reading. What does it mean that Jesus emptied himself? He did not lose anything. He gained something. Look again. Verse 7. Jesus Christ emptied himself by taking or receiving the form of a servant. He did not subtract from his divinity, but he added the form of a servant. He emptied himself by adding to himself a finite nature. This word for servant can also be translated as bondservant or slave. As one commentator explains, slavery pointed to the extreme deprivation of one's rights. Slavery pointed to the extreme deprivation of one's rights. Think about who we're talking about here. God, the creator of all things, was deprived of his rights. A slave does not make the rules or serve on his own terms. A slave does not pursue his own interest. A slave does not have rights to do whatever he wants. His only aim is to please his master. And Jesus Christ, the one who is full of glory and majesty, the one who created all things and sustains all things, the one who has planned every single second of history, the one who holds together every molecule in the universe, the one who every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth sing his praise, this one lowered himself to be a servant of all. Honestly, do we really understand what it means for Jesus to become a servant. There are really no illustrations that can capture this truth. I mean, the only thing that might scratch the surface is if you walked into the Mega Mall bathroom and saw His Highness Sultan bin Mohammed Al-Qasimi cleaning toilets. It's as if His Highness, the King, gave up his authority and his glory and his riches and his royalty to spend the rest of his life as a lowly servant. Now, if that's too far-fetched for you to really imagine, then think how unimaginable is it that Jesus Christ, the one who is the King of kings, the one who is the Lord of glory, lowered himself as a slave. He lowered himself on a dirty floor and washed his disciples' feet. He did not come to be served He came to serve and to be a ransom for many. Jesus Christ emptied himself by taking or adding to his divine nature the form of a servant. But the question remains, how did Jesus become a servant? Well, Paul clarifies in this next phrase. Look again at verse 7. Jesus Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He became a servant 
by becoming a human being. The amazing truth about the incarnation is that the divine son added a finite human nature. You see, before the incarnation, Jesus had one nature. But when he was born in Bethlehem that first Christmas, he now took on a human nature. He has two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by their union, but rather the property of both his divine and human nature being preserved in harmony in one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's from the, Chal the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. No, my friends, Jesus did not empty his divine attributes, but rather added to himself finite human attributes, a human nature, a soul and a body. He did not set aside his glory, but rather veiled his glory by taking on flesh. And you know why he did this? Why did God become a man? Why did he limit himself in such a way? To serve you and me. He had to become a human being to accomplish our salvation. As the author of Hebrews explains, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, that's Jesus Christ, likewise partook of the same things. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. That's Hebrews 2, verse 14 to 17. Or as one of the early church fathers once said, for that which Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. For that which Christ has not assumed, he has not healed. Meaning, if he did not become a man, there is no salvation for us. There is no hope because of our sinfulness. The amazing glory of Christmas is that God of very God came in the flesh. He was born a needy, dependent, helpless baby. The one who needs nothing needed everything from his mother just to stay alive. The one who upholds all things was held in Mary's arms. The one who owns all things had nothing. The one who knows all things had to be taught his ABCs. This is God we are talking about. He experienced the dependency and the fragility of being a human being in every single way except without sin. No sin. As the author of Hebrews explains, Jesus Christ, just listen to what the author says. He is able to sympathize with your weaknesses. You feel weak? He can sympathize with your weaknesses because he became weak. He's able to sympathize with your weaknesses. He was tempted in every respect. There's no temptation that you have faced that Christ did not face. He was tempted in every respect as we are, 
yet without sin. Therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's Hebrews 4, verse 14 to 16. Jesus Christ humbled himself as a servant and was weakened in every way so that he might serve you and me. My friends, if the Son of God lowered himself to such a degree, if he lowered himself in such a way to serve us, can we not lower ourselves to serve one another? He who denied himself in such a way, can we not deny ourselves for the sake of others? The humility of Christ leads to self-denial and a servant-hearted love. The humility of Christ leads to self-denial and a servant-hearted love. My friends, you need to put on the humility and heart of Jesus Christ. You need to put on his mind. Are you eager to deny yourself in order to serve others? Or do you only serve when, it is something, when something is in it for you? Do you only serve when you feel like it? Or do you only serve in the area that you like to do? You could never serve in the nursery because I don't like kids. Where's the fun or honor in that? Serving in the nursery is hard and tiring. And guess what? No one will notice. I can't clean the dishes at home. I have more important things to do, like lead a men's study or read a book with another sister. Friends, I hope you see the absurdity of your pride as you consider and compare it to the humility and service of Christ. He did not serve when he felt like it. He did not serve when it was convenient, but he denied himself all the way to Calvary. Brothers and sisters, flee your sinful pride and put on the servant-hearted humility of Christ. Remember and reflect all the ways he has served you and go and do likewise. He has forgiven you, so you go forgive. He has served you, so you go serve. He has loved you, so you do likewise. Put off your sinful pride and put on the mind of Christ by faith. And third and finally, Paul shows us the humiliation of humility. The humiliation of humility from verse 8. Look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he, that's Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus did not take advantage of his equality with God, but he lowered himself as a servant. He was born as a man. And as the incarnate son, Christ continued to humble himself by submitting himself to others. Jesus Christ willingly subjected himself to his earthly authorities. For instance, think about his obedience to his parents. Kids, this is for you kids up there. Listen to me. Is it, is it hard to obey mommy and daddy? Is it easy? It's hard, right? Do you know that Jesus obeyed his parents perfectly, 
even when you are not able to? The only way for you to be able to obey your parents is if you put on the mind of Christ. You cannot obey them because of your hard heart and your sin. You must turn from your sin and you must trust in Christ alone. You need his humility who willingly obeyed his parents. Or for those who are in work, is it easy to obey your bosses? Even when they're not being a jerk, it's hard to obey earthly authorities, especially when they treat you harshly. Wives, is it easy to joyfully submit to your husband every single day, all the time? Because that's what Christ calls you to. But yet Christ obeyed his earthly authorities in every single way. He was perfect in his obedience. I mean, it's amazing. He willingly and joyfully submitted himself to sinners like you and me. This is God. The divine son submitted himself to sinners. And even when he was reviled, he did not revile in return, but he continued day after day after day to entrust himself to God. He considered other interests and sought their eternal good. His life was a continual offering of service and love towards others. It was not the kind of service that was glamorous, something you'll see on the news or be praised like we see with celebrities. No, his service was considered by the world as scum. He was lowly. Isaiah prophesied about Jesus Christ as the servant in Isaiah 53, verse 1 to 3. Isaiah wrote, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this servant, he's speaking of Jesus Christ, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as of one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. If Jesus was here today, most of us would cower back in fear. We, was, we had nothing to do with him. He's like one of the untouchables. Like he had leprosy. He was despised and rejected by man, but yet he willingly and joyfully obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, his ultimate obedience was not to his earthly authorities. He obeyed his earthly authorities unto the Lord. His obedience was ultimately to God the Father. And you see, Jesus obeyed the full measure of the commands of God, the law. He did this to the point where in Matthew 5, 17, he could say that he came to fulfill every dot and every iota of God's word. My friends, in every way you have, you have failed to obey God's commands, Jesus humbled himself and joyfully obeyed. Think about all of the heroes of the Old Testament. Think about Adam or Abraham. 
Think about David or Israel. When Adam raised up in rebellion, Jesus did not. When Abraham forgot about God's faithfulness and took Hagar to be a wife, Jesus never wavered in his faith. When Israel stiff-necked and tested God in the wilderness, Jesus Christ overcame every temptation those 40 days. When David was proud in heart and committed adultery and murder, Jesus never looked at a woman with lustful intent. He never sought to take what was not rightfully his. My friends, every time you seek your own interests, fall into sin, give into anger, hold on to a grudge, look for the praise of man, lash out against others, fail to forgive, fail to love, fail to serve, Jesus obeyed in your place. Every single moment of his life, Jesus could have turned from this path of obedience. He could have turned away from the Calvary Road. He could have considered his own interests. He could have saved his life. At any moment, he could have abandoned God's salvation plan. Even as he told those who arrested him, he said, Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will once send me more than 12,000 legions of angels. But listen to this. But then, how should the scriptures be fulfilled? How will the scriptures be fulfilled? How will God's promises be fulfilled? How will God bring salvation to sinners like you and me? Rebels. Those who have hard, angry, bitter hearts who do not want to submit to authority, who do not want to submit to God, but deep down hate God. We've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And we worshiped ourselves. But Jesus Christ obeyed to the point of death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself to the point of complete and utter humiliation. He was abandoned by his disciples. He was spit upon. He was mocked for being a king by the centurions only if they knew who they were mocking. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was paraded through Jerusalem, made to carry his cross. He was stripped bare naked before others and he was crucified like a common criminal. He was nailed to a cross and hung there to die for all to see. He suffered the most excruciating, humiliating death. On that cross, not only did he suffer and die, but God turned his face away. Jesus cried out to his father, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God in our place. It should have been you. It should have been me. That's what we deserve. Death and hell. Friends, do you not see the amazing love of Jesus Christ? Do you not see his gracious humility to save hell-bound sinners like you and me? Each one of us in this room have exchanged the glory of God. We deserve his judgment. 
We worship ourselves. We do not prefer others' interests. We do not seek the glory of God. And we deserve to die for our sinful arrogance and pride. We deserve the full wrath of God for all of eternity. My friends, if you are not a Christian, kids, if you have not trusted in Christ, lay down your sinful pride today. Repent of your sins. Trust in him by faith, and he will give you his righteousness. He will give you his humility. He will give you his very mind. And though he died on that cross, the good news of the gospel is that he did not remain dead. God raised him from the dead and highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He now offers to you his righteousness, his glory, and his hope. He offers you himself. He has given himself so that you might worship him and enjoy his glory forever. The path to true joy, my friends, is not to seek your own interests, to lie from the pit of hell. The path to true joy is to deny yourself and to trust in him. The path to eternal glory is found at the cross. It is here where all of our pride comes to die and true life and everlasting joy is found. This is God's design My friends, every time you humble yourself through faith in Christ, if you are a believer, you are storing up for yourself eternal life and everlasting joy in the age to come. My friends, if you are a Christian, come to this cross every single day. Kill your pride and put on the mind of Christ. He has given it to you, and you can live out of his righteousness by faith. Look to Christ and walk in his humility. He purchased it for you. He died for you. He bled for you so that you might be humble and serve others. Friends, Scripture says that Mary's boy was born that he might die. Angels' voices burst in praise. Their harmony fill the sky. They sing glory in the highest heaven. They sing glory, glory, gracious peace on earth. Those on whom his favor rests exalt in the Savior's birth. Let us exalt in the Savior's birth today and every day for the rest of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the humility of Christ. We thank you for his grace to die for our sins and to rise again. Lord, we ask you to help us to receive this by faith, to rejoice in the gift of salvation that he has provided us. Lord, we pray that you help us to daily put off our pride and to put on Christ. Lord, we pray that you'd expose areas where we're clinging to lies of this world or seeking our own interests. That you help us to really believe that the cross is the better way, that Christ is better than anything this world can offer or imagine. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.